Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Lean Publishing podcast, I'll be interviewing Brian Caffo. Brian is a professor at the Department of Biostatistics at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University and director of the graduate program at JHU Biostatistics. Brian works in the fields of computational statistics and neuroinformatics and is a co-founder of the Smart Working Group at Hopkins Biostatistics, which specializes in medical and especially neurological imaging and biosignals such as polysomnography and wearable computing. In 2011, he was among the recipients of the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers and the first statistician to receive such an award. Brian has also received the Bloomberg School of Public Health, Golden Apple, and AMTRA Teaching Awards. Brian is the author of two LeanPub books, Statistical Inference for Data Science and Regression Models for Data Science in R. Each book offers a brief but rigorous treatment of statistical inference and regression models, respectively, and is intended for practicing data scientists. Both books are companions to classes offered as part of the data science specialization on Coursera, a 10-course program offered by Brian and his colleagues at Johns Hopkins, Jeff Leak and Roger Peng. In this interview, we're going to talk about Brian's professional interests, his books, his experiences using LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and other authors. So thank you, Brian, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's great, uh, it's great to talk with you and meet you. Thanks. Um, so I usually like to start these interviews by, people ask, by asking people for their, their origin story um, to learn how they got to where they are in their careers um, and how they developed their interests. So I'm wondering specifically how you first became interested in biostatistics and why you decided to pursue a career in academia. Well, uh, so the, the long version of this story is um, uh, when I was in college, I was, I was actually a swimmer in college. I wasn't a terribly good swimmer, but I was on a um, uh, you know, a, a big team. I was at the University of Florida, which has a, a great swimming program. <clears throat> and um, I was an art major at the time. And um, I, uh, it, you know, I was spending so much time training that I, you know, I didn't have a ton of time to actually put into the being an art major, which is a surprisingly difficult major, especially in terms of time. Um, <clears throat> and um, I, uh, you know, I, I had an aptitude for mathematics, so I kept taking math classes, maybe a little bit lower level than I needed to, but then just kept incrementally uh, doing it um, to kind of fill out my hours um, so that I could have uh, some classes to, um, you know, to, to, to be able to manage uh, swimming and, and trying to do the art major. And finally, after doing this for long enough, I talked to a guidance counselor and they said, you know, um, we, we don't we typically don't get too many art majors who are, you know, are taking differential equations and linear algebra and these sorts of subjects. <laughs> and he said and she said, you know, you seem to be actually doing better in those than you are doing in your art classes. And she, she said, you know, you can always do it in your spare time. And uh, so from there, I switched uh, I switched over to become a math major. And from mathematics, I um, I'd spent some time studying um working with the Children's Oncology Group, uh, uh, which was then uh, centered in Gainesville uh, at the University of Florida where I was at. And uh, from there, I just really uh, fell in love with the, uh, you know, with working with data and uh, the kind of computing and mathematics that goes along with statistics. And just staying in academics for me was, um, uh, you know, was in a, in a lot of ways a, a no-brainer. I, I really you know, loved the things that I was doing, and I, I loved the kind of research that I was doing, and um, I was very fortunate to get a to get a position here at Hopkins, where I, you know, I, I have such amazing access to great data, great researchers, great um, um, 
medical research and the so um, that's that's the long version of my origin story. Okay, thanks. That's very good. Um, it's an it's an interesting path. Um, I was wondering if you could explain um, some of the reasons you co-founded the Smart Working Group and what the purpose of the group is. Yeah. So uh, originally, so th this was co-founded with a collaborator here, Chipriyan Kranichanu, and we uh, we had a lot of similar interest in terms of how we approach modeling and how to how we approach statistics. And we were getting a lot of people coming to us, talking to us about some new kind of measurement that they were collecting. So they might, they, you know, and, and in my case, it was mostly brain imaging measurements. And, and you might think that there's, you know, only a couple of ways that you can measure the brain. And that, that idea couldn't possibly be more wrong. Hmm. Uh, just even with one type of scanner, a magnetic resonance imaging scanner, um, there are so many different ways you can tweak an MRI scanner to give you different kinds of signals in the brain um, that you, you can barely count them. And so at any rate, both in terms of brain imaging, but also things like sleep studies and polysom polysomnograms, as they're called, as well as, um, as other kinds of wearable computing things, we were constantly getting people coming to us and talking to us about how do I analyze this kind of data, especially you know because we're here at a school of public health, we're here at a medical institution, People wanted to relate these measurements to disease. They wanted to um, create preventions and prognoses. And, 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 it, and I'm in a school of public health. People wanted to relate it to large populations. And they didn't know how to do it. It involves a lot of computing, mathematics, um, statistics. And uh, so we noticed a kind of common thread of some sort of biological signals or biosignals. And we founded the group out of it. And initially, it was a, it was a group. Um, with air quotes around it, and then um, after enough faculty kind of joined in and um, enough students joined in, we started having alumni from the group and and postdocs and things like that. It's now become a, a rather large entity. When we have a full group meeting, which we don't have that often anymore because it's it's gotten so unwieldy, maybe thirty five or forty people will show up. Wow, that's that's great. Um, can you can you explain a little bit about what a biosignal is and maybe give give an example of one? So we, we kind of take a, bio, a biosignal basically to any biological or medical uh, signal um, that, that is used to, you know, create a diagnosis or to create a measurement that is then used for research purposes. That's, you know, and the, which is a very broad definition. We do, you know, an important, um, bios, an important class of biosignals that we don't really delve into too much in our, in our work is the, the field of uh, computational genomics and, and high-throughput bioinformatics. So we don't do too much of that. There's a, there's a lot of different interesting kinds of measurements that go on there. Um, but, um, but we, you know, kind of broadly classify it. And we did it that way because... Um, you know, around here and around Hopkins, there were large developed bioinformatics groups because there was so much excitement over the sequencing of the human genome. And but a lot of these other technological revolutions were kind of getting left behind in terms of an analysis skills. So we sort of lumped them all together. And so, yeah, I agree that things like biosignals are kind of a vague term. But um, um, but uh, now, now we maybe now that we've gotten big enough, we need to maybe make them more precise and define ourselves a little better. <laughs> oh no, f fair enough. I was just wondering, you know, is, is so, so for example, is like something people might be familiar with, like rapid eye movement. Is that does that count as a biosignal, or like measure, oh, okay. measuring so eye movements? About, 
Yeah, so there you're talking about in, in sleep. So uh, sleep, that's a, sleep is typically measured if you, if you get a, a, you know, a, a rigorous sleep study. Um, that's called a polysomnogram. And so the collection of biosignals that they would collect in that case would be um, electroencephalogram. They put electrodes on your head that collects kind of brain, brain activity. Um, they have things like a myogram that they would put, for example, on your, um, um, on your chest that would detect like breathing and, and that, that, that's detecting motion a little bit. They, they might have some motion sensor that they're putting on your leg for restless leg syndrome. They, they, might, um, they might have a oxygen, something that measures oxygen that they would put on your, on your finger. Um, and they might put an EKG on if, you know, in most of the sleep studies we were looking at, they were very interested in cardiac outcomes associated with different kinds of sleep disorders. And so um, they might have an EKG on. So uh, it, specifically when you talk about REM, what you're talking about is the collection of measurements. And, and then for, for a sleep, a diagnostic sleep study, they have things that are going to measure things about your breathing. Um, the the um, REM is a specific classification of a sleep state, and that arises from uh, a subsets of these biosignals that they use to then classify different kinds of sleep, deep, you know, deep sleep, you know, different stages of sleep and REM. Um, that's that's an important aspect of the measurement. Usually, they actually have to go; they they have to take them and pass them through a human to to get the staging like that. But uh, yeah, as an example, we have several papers on analyzing the percent of the time that you spend in REM over the course of an evening, things that they call things like sleep architecture. So we often think about how, um, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you're tired for several days straight, you might think you might catch up on sleep or something like that. And that, that relates to things like sleep efficiency and sleep architecture and these sorts of things that we get out of those signals. So going from those signals to these measurements and relating them to diseases in the population is really what, what we try to do. And you've, you've done work with uh, signals that come directly from the brain where you've implanted electrodes directly on the brain as well. Is that correct? Yeah, so that, that kind of measurement, the, the one kind of measurement like that that I've dealt with is called electrocorticography, and that's something they do for people with pretty severe epilepsy, um, where different medications and other kinds of treatments have failed, and they're left with nothing other than brain surgery. They saw off the top of their head, they, and, and as, a, um, as a measure to, to help inform the surgery, they place these electrodes, this electrode sheet, directly on the cortex, um, and then usually there's some time between the the early parts of the surgery and then the actual brain brain surgery part. And so the the uh, people often let some amount of experimentation go on in terms of you know maybe playing sounds or um, having them do things and then recording the brain activity while while that that's going on. So yeah, in some rare cases you can actually collect human measurements. Um, from otherwise healthy humans who have some severe disorder like epilepsy, where the, the measurements are directly implanted on the brain. Um, I don't personally do this, but there's also a lot of people around here who study mice and um, monkeys and other things where they, they actually implant the electrodes. So, so these aren't implanted. These, the, the, this rests on top of the cortex. The, the other, there are other people who do things. There's a fascinating field um, called machine brain interface where people are implanting electrodes in monkey brains and they're getting the monkeys to like feed themselves hmm. uh, based on, with a robotic arm, just 
the robotic arm being controlled by the electrodes directly implanted in the brain. So that's a that's a you know there's tons of neat areas where there's actually direct implant implantation of the of the electrodes, but that only occurs in these more invasive things that you can that, that people do on animals. I tend to, I, I almost exclusively work on on human data. Um, I've read also that um, the smart working group um, uses uh, brain imaging for prediction, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what brain imaging is and how it can be used to predict behavior. So, so uh, the kind of brain imaging that I work on is so-called functional magnetic resonance imaging, and in that you don't get a static image, you get a dynamic image that represents, hopefully, uh, brain activity, localized brain activity over time. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that people might use both this kind of measurement and other kinds of brain measurements for prediction. So a uh, very, you know, as an example, a, a colleague that I'm working with right now wants to use brain activity uh, as measured by fMRI plus some structural measurements in people who are in comas to try and predict when they'll come out of it or if they'll, if they'll come out of it and the, the prognosis um, and so uh, that, that's an example of using brain imaging as a biomarker to predict some outcome. There's another, uh, I don't do too much of this, but a colleague of mine in the smart working group, uh, someone who uh, we managed to successfully recruit to the university, a, a, a extremely um, uh, well-known fMRI researcher, Martin Lindquist, he works on actually trying to predict what's going on in your head with the information from the scanner at that moment. So in, in, in particular, he works on pain. So he tries to predict, how, you know, they, they have people in the scanner and they actually deliver pain to them by a, by a, a hot, um, you know, a, a hot um, a, a plate or something that's resting on the wrist. So it actually stings a little bit. And they deter, you know, the, he tries to predict how hot it was on the plate, just based exactly on the on the brain signal and things like that. So trying, and that has implications for trying to understand, you know, how we can get a better measurement of pain, right? When people just say, oh, something hurts, you know, a physician doesn't know what that means, but if they can calibrate it. So he's working toward the idea of, of actual um, prediction of pain. So, the, so that's another way that you could use that, that you could use these kinds of measurements for prediction. And there, there's, there's quite a few. Um, so we do we do some of the, I tend to more focus on the public healthy type prediction type things of where we try to predict whether or not a person has a disease, whether or not they'll come out of the coma is another example. Um, these sorts of things where the image is just a, a collection of a, a part of the measurement. You know, a really big one that everyone's working on right now is trying to predict who will get Alzheimer's disease. Um, and the reason being that if you can detect Alzheimer's disease early, then you have a much better chance of being able to develop an effective treatment. Um, uh, generally, on the subject of gathering gathering data, um, uh, I was wondering if you had any comments about the impact that wearable computing is going to have on on public health generally, and on and, and perhaps on on uh, uh, on your field specifically. Uh, it's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. And um, so I so um, the smart group does a lot of wearable computing work. Personally, I don't do too much, um, but my colleague Ciprian, who co-founded the group with me, um, along with some some others in the group, have really, you know, dove into wearable computing in, in a big way. And um, there's so many different kinds. I mean, it's 
you know, I mean, people, when you think of wearable computing, I mean, people tend to think of things like Fitbit and stuff like that. But there, for research purposes, there's a million different kinds of sensors and measurements that, that people can take that are now, um, you know, small enough and portable enough. And, and it, it is just amazing. And I think, I think it's going to revolutionize public health in terms of our ability to get accurate measurements for, you know, for lots of different things. And I, the, the key bottleneck is having enough people who know how to analyze this stuff, where our, our, our ability to collect data is just so vastly outstripping our ability to analyze it. And so we see actually the bigger problem is not the development of the sensors and stuff like that, because lots of smart people are working on that and they're developing great stuff. Um, but then so much data gets produced and the bottleneck, the real bottleneck now is, um, is people to analyze the data. So, I, you know, I would say to anyone who's a aspiring young uh, machine learner or computer science uh, statistician or biostatistician or anything like that, it's a great field to get into. I was going to ask on that subject, um, generally speaking, statistics seems to be sort of enjoying a cultural moment with um, the popularity of sports and election statistics and, you know, most commonly associated in North America with people like Nate Silver. And I was wondering if you think that this specifically is going to inspire more people to get into things like data science and if improved, if data literacy generally will improve as we go forward, say, if we're if we're all wearing Fitbits or, or things like that. Um, well, I think I think this cultural revolution is is really for sure is helping, you know, like Moneyball, the book is a great example um, that, you know, um, yeah, like Nate Silver. Yeah, the, the, that cultural revolution is is great and is you know is really going to help out our field and the this closely related field but i think the bigger impetus for drawing people into the field is the demand for jobs in, in the field i think the the fact that there are so it's it's one of the relatively few sectors where there's an enormous amount of job growth and that there's um way more demand than supply and there's no apparent um, um harvesting that's happening, that, that there's no leveling off that seems to be uh, eventually the case that we're just in, in, in new kind of data-oriented companies seem to be popping up every day and giant companies, all your Googles and Facebooks and Twitters and everyone, are, you know, they're, they're ostensibly data companies at some level. And um, so I think the, the, the major draw for people into this field will be the fact that, that it, it is going to be one of the principal jobs of the of the future, um, which you know, which you know, when I when I got into it, when I was a lowly art major trying to figure out what to do, um, you know, there weren't there weren't all different kinds of options, and and it's interesting now we see our students, um, the amount of options that our students have now is truly remarkable. You know, some of them go into finance, some of them go into technology, and you know, move off to Silicon Valley, and some of them stay in academics, some of them. Do biostatistics? Someone go to mathematics. The, the number of options they have now is is, is remarkable. Um, I read on your website that you have a, a particular interest in large scale open access education. And I know, of course, that you've been quite quite successful with the data specialization course on Coursera. Um, I was wondering what inspired your interest in open access education and what plans you might have going forward. Well, um, yeah. So so in this LeanPub fits really really well into our vision, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Um, so initially, it was really just kind of fortuitous. Um, I had wanted to, to flip my classroom, which is the process where students watch videos at home, the lecture at home, 
but during the class period, they actually get you know more of my time and the TA's time in actually doing problems. And you know, there's a lot of uh, work so far that's showing that that's a more effective way to teach people, and that the old sage on the stage um, lecture model is, is is not the optimal way to do things. So when I um, contacted some people to do some recording in our school, they mentioned that we had um, just struck a deal with this uh, open access, open education uh, company called Coursera and asked if whether I'd like to be one of the people in the launch. And so I agreed. I was really enthusiastic about it. And I uh, happily went and then talked to Roger and Jeff, um, who are my two colleagues here, who were very interested in it as well. And, um, you know, I think my class was okay. Their classes were just blockbusters. And um, from then on, you know, our, we were, our, our interest was really peaked, and, I, you know, for a variety of reasons. But w one of which being this, this idea of delivering low-cost or free education is very appealing to people in academics. Um, so I think that the books, LeanPub in, in particular, has really helped us in terms of kind of fitting into that model. So our Coursera model for all of our courses is everything's free. Um, the lecture notes are all posted on GitHub and you can see the full development process. The videos are all free, both on Coursera and you know you can get them off of YouTube for most of us as well. Um, and it just makes sense too that the textbook, if there, if there was a textbook that existed for these classes, um, that that should also have a free option or a variable or some, something that, that um, some new some not some new way for doing the pricing so that it um, you know it conformed to this this new model and it it conforms great so and in leanpub for uh, for textbook especially uh, especially because we can basically give the students edition updates and things like that and a lot of things that people would complain about university textbooks just get all solved all at once um, so uh, yeah so fit that fit actually pretty well with our our kind of open education mission. So, um, I don't, you know, I, so I don't know how specifically how I got interested into it other than this series of events and that, you know, it, it kind of always kind of fell well within my kind of personal ethic. And I think the same, same, with, same with Roger and Jeff. Um, I would also mention that the school was a very early um, pioneer for open education uh, well before Coursera and before Khan Academy and things like that, there was um, MIT OpenCourseWare. And our school was a participant in MIT OpenCourseWare. And I was in on some of those meetings where they were deciding to do it. And I was super enthusiastic about it at that time as well. This, this was quite a while ago. So um, um, I think the school has really been on the van, the School of Public Health here. Uh, has really been on the vanguard of open education and and it's you know part of being in being part of that culture kind of seeps in as well it's it's really interesting i know there are some some voices out there that respond you know relatively conservatively to the idea of open education and in particular they'll invoke the possibility that it's a it might be a competitor or a threat to conventional university education and i was wondering what your response might be to that that criticism uh, for sure it will it, it's possible it might be a a threat to certain financial models for certain departments for certain topics but by and large um i, I you know I, it's the the question is whether or not these are coming up with new markets or they're poaching existing markets um i think the vast majority of this 
of the ways in which the students take these classes are new markets. They might be university students, but you know, a student might sign up for a machine learning class that they may not have taken on Coursera other, or, or on the, at their university otherwise. So I think probably the majority of the student engagement on, on Coursera, edX, Udemy, these other sites, is probably new users. Um, but, but for sure there is a certain amount of poaching that also has to occur that student that was going to take that elective class elects to just take it on Coursera or something like that. that I'm, I'm sure that to some extent that 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 is happening a little bit, but it's not all that dissimilar from the, you know, um, you know, correspondence courses and, and other other historic attempts over time to broaden access to education in different ways for people who have different circumstances. Um, you know, I think a lot of that focus on how online education is going to disrupt universities is a is a, 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 a laser beamed focus on 18 to 22 year olds in undergraduate education. But the people who take these classes exist well into their, um, you know, uh, uh, work life well beyond their university life. Um, and so um, I, I think it's a lot more complex than that. I think I think. Um, uh, there is a certain amount of disruption that are, that's occurring because of it, but um, I think it's it's in, in a lot of ways good disruption. I think you know the one way in which maybe the kind of disruption that you're talking about might occur is any place that really has a revenue model where they use introduct large um, introductory classes as a revenue generating um, component with adjuncts to. Uh, um, to, to, to generate the revenue that they use for other things, um, if they have if they, they don't have uh, a very diverse uh, you know kind of financial model that that might get that might get disrupted, but even that I don't see that much. You know, people like in person classes, so I just don't <laughs> you know I don't I just don't see how much uh, I, I I do think m most of it is new users and new. Um, new content. But, uh, you know, I am a university professor at some level. I'm dependent on brick and mortar mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. learning as well. Mm -hmm. Not on some level, on exactly every level. <laughs> um, on the subject of uh, generating revenue and um, and textbooks in academia, I was just wondering if you, and, and, and also journal articles, I was wondering how you see academic publishing evolving, say, over the next few years, and if there's going to be a shift sort of perhaps... Um, along the lines of what's happening towards open access education with with video tutorials and things like that i i feel i feel a little bit more confident that something like leanpub is is going to disrupt traditional book publishing than i am about what will happen with traditional universities with with respect to online teaching um because i you know i our experience with LeanPub has just shown that if you know if you have your own you know channels to to get your book out there, um, then then it is really an ideal circumstance. And you can you know if you, if you're willing to publish something as a, as purely as an ebook or mostly as an ebook, then you can do all sorts of interesting things with embedded videos. So in my in my stat inference book. Um, not all, but most of the homework problems have links to YouTube videos that actually give the solutions um, with me working them out. Like I have a, a little tablet here that I, I hand write out the solutions as I record myself doing them. And, uh, you know, I, I, 
that seemed that kind of disruption seems pretty um, inevitable to me at this point. The um, for for uh, journal publishing, I, I'm less I'm less certain about. I, I don't know a lot about the the journal publishing business. I guess I don't really know much about the book publishing business either. But from my experience as an author, um, I, I I can't even imagine contacting a, a traditional publisher at this point. Hmm. Um, but uh, but for journal publishing, uh, that that that's you know I mean I still submit articles to the you know to the journals that everyone thinks. You know, the, to the, I th submit my best articles to what I think are the best journals that'll take them, um, and uh, I don't uh, I don't know about uh, disrupt. There's a lot of discussion in academics right now about discussion of academic publishing, and um, there's uh, there's a lot of new models that are coming out. I must say, many of them are really impressive. Like Frontiers is an example of one that I've worked with that I think is quite impressive, and PLOS is another example that's that's quite impressive. But it's less I have a less clear picture in my mind of how that will shake out. Um, I know that in, in, in both of your books on LeanPub, um, you mentioned that, um, you know, people are invited to um, send you errata or with pull requests on GitHub and things like that. And I was wondering um, if engaging directly with people who've already bought your book is important to you and if there's anything we could do at LeanPub to help you engage better with your readers on online. Yeah, so I, I like the fact that that I you know if I decide to add a, an extra you know section or a chapter or uh, you know a new set of problems or something like that, um, I I like the fact that the publishing allows me to and LeanPub uh, allows me to uh, contact everyone who's bought the book and and tell them. So sometimes I'll republish the book and I'll just send out an e I'll send out an email to everyone that just says I'm republishing the book. Um, this is minor stuff. Don't bother reloading, you know, re-downloading and putting on your devices, you know, for this. But then sometimes I'll put a new whole new section or chapter in and I'll be like, this is probably worth re-downloading if you're still actively engaged in the book. So the ability to contact people, I think, is is quite useful. And, you know, they may, they might want to, you know, people who bought the inference book might want to get the regression one. So the ability to email them out and say it uh, and say to, to do that is, is great. So, um, yeah, I think it's, that that's a nice aspect of um, you know having direct access to the to the customers and the 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 GitHub integration. So the students submit pull request on GitHub, then I'll correct that error. So it's not like they're emailing me errata; they're submitting it as a pull request. I'll accept the pull request. Um, you know, I have one of the um, the switches on GitHub that when I do whenever I check something in, it automatically recompiles it on LeanPub. So They'll submit a pull request. I'll accept the pull request when I, um, uh, you know, recommit the repository, repush the repository. Then it automatically gets recompiled on 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 LeanPub. Then you know I have to republish the book if I, you know, which I'll only do every now and then when it's a big enough, uh, big enough set of changes. Uh, but it's it, that's actually really great because it's not like I'm getting a ton of emails. I'm getting you know it's working through on on GitHub, which is, is fantastic. And specifically with respect to emailing readers, um, we we actually do a kind of you know a sort of double blind where we don't um, reveal the like the reader's email address to the author or the author's email address to the That's reader. Right. We're kind of a middleman. And does that is that do you see that as a good thing or does it bother you that you can't see the emails the actual email addresses unless they opt into that? I think it's it's sort of irrelevant to me. I, I mean, if I had a list of emails, I wouldn't do anything with it. So it would just be. If I actually had to manage the emails, that would be kind of an annoyance. So it's kind of it's kind of useful. 
Um, but then also as a, you know, from the consumer side, it seems like a nice protection of their identity and their information, you know, so okay. uh, that seems, that seems pretty reasonable. Okay. Uh, and I don't have any need for their email otherwise. So yeah, okay. uh, it seems like the right way to do it. Okay, great. Um, I was wondering um, if there's anything specific that you think we could improve in your, in your workflow or, or for the way you like to, to, to write into contact readers, for example, if there's anything specifically that's come up. Well, so for the, um, for the data science specialization, we actually wrote all the lecture notes in Markdown. So it, the ability to convert the lecture notes into to a kind of a lecture, what, I, what I, I think of the stuff I'm doing is more kind of like lecture text. Right. So it's sort of a it's highly connected to the class. Right. It's 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 sort of a standalone book, but it's mostly connected to the class. Um, the, but the ability to kind of create that kind of entity uh, in Markdown, because LeanPub, you know, the authoring is in Markdown was very seamless. Uh, and that helped out. That helped a lot. Uh, one instance where one instance where uh, I think things could be improved is if you could author directly in LaTeX, I noticed that. LeanPub uh, apparently does Markdown and then probably does Pandoc to create a LaTeX file, which it then LaTeX, or I, I'm pretty confident I'm, I'm seeing in the log file standard LaTeX compiling. Um, so if there's some way you could actually author in LaTeX for the math, science, computer science, stat, crowd, you know, LaTeX is the lingua franca of the community. Um, so people already know it. Um, that's one thing. The, the other thing would be access to the log files after it gets compiled. Um, um, that would be that would be very useful because it, when it comes in an email, that that's just a, a timing thing. Um, but a, another, I think, another useful thing would be an offline compiler or or something that was close enough to where you could compile it offline. So a combination like a Pandoc. Um, a collection of pandoc commands or something like that that said, oh yeah, take this, do this to your markdown file, and this will approximate pretty well whether or not you'll get an error. Um, I think that, that um, so so that you can kind of write and rapidly debug. I, I've noticed the only time I ever get an error while compiling is with equations. That's it. So the the, the so for for certain subjects, that's no problem. Um, but for for like in, for inference, it was a little that that was that part was a, a little hard. Fortunately, I knew, I already knew the math was already typeset without errors for LaTeX to begin with, so that was helpful. But for writing a de novo book, um, something that would something that would uh, allow you kind of a quicker ability to debug errors in the math um, math typesetting, that would be that would be helpful. Okay, well, thank but, you. Uh, okay, well, thank you. Yeah, thanks very much for that. We're actually going to be working on an on an author app, um, and um, hopefully, hopefully that you know a lot of that will be incorporated into it when when we do that because we want to make it we want to make it easier for people to work on their own on their own machines. Sure, and the other thing, yeah, and I've never tried it, but I, I you know another solution in my particular case would just be to convert it to EPUB myself and then upload it as an EPUB file. Oh, okay. I noticed you guys just accept an EPUB file by itself. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so I could yeah, so I could author it in LaTeX, pandoc it to an EPUB file, and then just submit the EPUB file. So I've never tried that solution. Um, I just have one last question. Um, are you working on any other books right now that you plan on publishing? So yeah, so I, if you look, uh, I don't I don't know how often you look in people's accounts. I've got about seven queued up. 
Um, so I, so I, I teach three classes as part of the specialization. So I've done two of them, inference and regression. I, I've got to finish up regression. I'd classify regression. I think on the slider on EPUB, it says maybe 70%. Um, I'd like to get it up to 100%. And then after I've finished with regression, I teach a third class in the specialization called developing data products. I'd like to finish that one. That, that will be, um, that's a, because it's a computer-oriented book, that will be really ideal for the LeanPub authoring and, and, and setting. Um, and then after that, I have a, a, two Coursera classes that are coming out that I hope to, that I hope to create. My, my, my new strategy is to be to write the LeanPub book, then record the videos, and then release the class. The reason being is that the LeanPub book will almost then serve as a script for the videos. And then for the class, so so we're we're thinking of, it, of that in terms of in terms of the workflow. That's that's just really interesting. I'm so glad to glad to glad to hear that you're using using LeanPub that way. I mean, it's one of the things we always hoped hoped it would be used for. Um, I'd just like to say um, before we go, thank you very much, Brian, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast and for being a LeanPub author. Oh yeah, thank you. We we've had a blast. Um, it's it's been really fun. It's been really fun working with the platform, and I I really I'm a big. Um, um, pro, you know, proselytizer for early public at this point. I, I, we, our experience has been great. So thank you guys for, for creating such a great product. Thanks very much.